Welcome back to another exciting episode of Libya Matters. In 2020, LFJL hosted its second annual justice lecture in partnership with SOAS. If you're a long-time listener of Libya Matters, you will know that the idea of the lecture is to bring in world leaders in their field to look at a legal question from the perspective of Libya. This lecture followed on from the first annual justice lecture delivered at SOAS by Pablo de Grief, which you can find in episode 17. The second lecture, for reasons we all know, taking the form of an online webinar. We were extremely fortunate and privileged to have the wonderful Hanim Ghali deliver it. His lecture, Doing Justice, International Investigations and the Path to Accountability, which was delivered shortly after the establishment of the UN fact-finding mission in Libya, addressed the important and somewhat overlooked role of fact-finding missions and commissions of inquiry and their contribution to bringing accountability. Han is a commissioner with the Commission of Inquiry for Syria and a senior fellow at the NYU Center for International Cooperation. Before that, he was the director of the Asia, Pacific, Middle East and North Africa Division at the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and before that still, wore several hats at the International Center for Transitional Justice, including as acting president. I remember first meeting Hani in 2011 when LFJL was running a workshop in Tunis. This was when he was director of Asia Pacific, Middle East and North Africa at the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. He happened to be staying in the same hotel. He popped into our session and spent time introducing himself and meeting the participants who had come from Libya. I remember the time thinking that was so nice, and as I got to know his style and see that of others in senior positions, I appreciate more than ever the power of his humility and eagerness to listen. With that, I leave you with Hani. Enjoy his reflections. Hello, everyone. I have to say it's a huge honor, and I must admit quite daunting, to follow in the footsteps of my dear friend Pablo de Greff, a former colleague at ICTJ, a current colleague at New York University, and the former United Nations Special Rapporteur on the promotion of truth, justice, reparations, and guarantees of non-recurrence, who delivered the inaugural annual Justice Lecture last year, on the meaning of justice and the different manifestations of transitional justice. I want to thank Lawyers for Justice in Libya, the Center for Human Rights Law at SOAS, and the International Center for Transitional Justice for inviting me to give the second lecture. And I also want to thank Ilham Saoudi for all her help in making this event happen. As some of you will know, I've worn several human rights hats in my lifetime. But since September 2017, I've been a commissioner on the UN Commission of Inquiry on the Syrian Arab Republic. This commission was established by the UN Human Rights Council in August 2011 and is by far the longest-running commission of its kind in the history of the United Nations. The COI on Syria is an interesting and illustrative example in many respects, and I will reference it in various parts of the presentation. Today, I will briefly introduce international human rights investigations by the United Nations, touching on the main characteristics and functions of such bodies. I will then look at the evolving role of commissions of inquiry and fact-finding missions in the global effort to hold perpetrators accountable and to obtain broader justice for victims and survivors. Last, I will reflect on some good practices and areas for potential improvement that new mandates such as the Libya fact-finding mission may want to reflect upon. Commissions of inquiry and international fact-finding date back at least to the Hague Conventions of 1899 and 1907 on the Pacific Settlement of International Disputes. After the creation of the United Nations, human rights fact-finding developed in the 1950s and 60s with contentious inquiries in relations to apartheid in South Africa 
and Israel's occupation of Palestine. The first entry in the UN Research Guide on Commissions of Inquiry and Fact-Finding Missions begins with the General Assembly-mandated fact-finding mission to South Vietnam in 1963. Up until 2006, when the Human Rights Council succeeded the Commission on Human Rights, the Security Council, the General Assembly, the Human Rights Commission, and the Secretary General mandated human rights fact-finding missions from time to time. These tools proliferated in the 1990s and the early 2000s, but the, but the period following the creation of human, the Human Rights Council saw a veritable explosion in the use of human rights fact-finding by UN member states. During the 40 years or so from 1963 to 2005, the UN Library lists 29 human rights fact-finding missions established by the United Nations. From 2006 to the present, there have been 44 such mandates, not including the new fact-finding mission on Libya. This list, of course, does not include the various special procedures, mechanisms, the special rapporteurs, special representatives, independent experts, and working groups created by the Commission on Human Rights and the Human Rights Council on various country and thematic issues. For today, though, I will focus more on the fact-finding mandates, and in particular those established by the United Nations Human Rights Council. The types of fact-finding mechanisms now established by the Human Rights Council have varied greatly, but one can draw a distinction between three general categories. The first category would be the OHCHR-led fact-finding missions and investigations, which are mandated by the Council. OHCHR fact-finding missions are typically led by and comprised of a small team of staff members of the OHCHR Secretariat. While the High Commissioner does not need a mandate from the Council to conduct such investigations, a resolution of the Council ensures the issues on the agenda when the Member States meet and the findings are presented and debated in what's termed interactive dialogue. The second category, which will be my main focus today, are what are termed independent fact-finding missions, groups of experts or commissions of inquiry. These independent bodies may have very similar mandates to the first category, to investigate allegations of human rights violations and abuses and report publicly. But they are led by functionally independent individuals and supported by a larger secretariat, typically between 10 and 25, provided by OHCHR. The key here is that experts for com or commissioners are not United Nations staff, even if their secretariats are, and are appointed based on a number of criteria, including records of impartiality and independence, recognized competence in human rights and humanitarian or diplomatic affairs, familiarity with international human rights fact-finding, integrity and moral standing, among other criteria. And of course, with due regard to geographic diversity and gender balance. The High Commissioner or the President of the Human Rights Council will typically consult with member states, OHHR, and local NGOs and CSOs prior to making an appointment. Once they're appointed, they must take an oath, and I quote, to discharge these functions with the sole objective of contributing to the promotion and protection of human rights. These independent experts are required to present their findings 
and recommendations directly to the Human Rights Council. One key difference between the various formulations of independent entities is the appointing authority. Typically, commissions and FFMs are appointed by the President of the Human Rights Council, while the groups of experts are established or dispatched by the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Commissions and FFMs often have larger secretariats, and there's a presumption that a commission of inquiry carries more weight or import compared to a fact-finding mission, even if the appointing authorities are the same. The third category of investigative mechanisms are a new development with the creation by the General Assembly of the International Impartial and Independent Mechanism, so-called IIIM, for Syria in late 2016, followed by the IIIM for Myanmar, created by the Human Rights Council in 2018. These two bodies represent a new type of entity focused on the collection, consolidation, preservation, and analysis of information and evidence, specifically for the purpose of future criminal accountability. These entities are essentially born out of inaction at the UN Security Council and the failure to address criminal justice accountability by referral of situations to the International Criminal Court or through the creation of special or ad hoc tribunals. Aside from the third category, a common denominator is that by mandating such an investigation, the Human Rights Council places the issue of concern on the agenda of the Council and ensures that the investigation report is an official public UN document that's circulated to all member states and typically forms the basis for a debate at the Council. This process serves to highlight the importance and gravity of the situation in a country or territory as one which requires specific attention of the Council, provides a record of the situation or incident, and often results in recommendations for future potential action by the General Assembly or the Security Council. So how do these investigations work? In the best practice methodologies of commissions and FFMs, one will often see reference to the reasonable grounds to believe or reasonable grounds to conclude standard. The COI on Syria has often described it as the standard of proof was considered met when the Commission obtained and corroborated a reliable body of information sufficient for it to conclude that there were reasonable grounds to believe the incidents occurred as described and that violations were committed by the identified warring party. To reach this standard, there are mainly two types of verifications happening. The first is built on specific incidents or events. For specific incidents, corroboration is met when two or more reliable witness accounts concerning a specific incident are obtained from persons with independent knowledge of the incident. This would require that investigators are probing interviewees for credibility, consistency, bias, and circular reporting. In a context such as Syria, after 10 years of conflict, it would be almost impossible to find a source of information without some sort of personal or institutional bias. It does not mean that you discard that source or the information they provide, but it does mean that you have to take that bias into account when you're examining the information they provide, and it often means there's need for a larger pool of sources for verification. 
The second type of verification would be pattern verification. This is typically used for violations like torture and ill treatment, as well as sexual gender-based violence cases, where in most instances, one is likely to have multiple victims or witnesses to a specific incident. In such cases where a commission or FFM obtains consistently credible and reliable accounts of such incidents by multiple witnesses or victims that describe similar conduct, witnessed or experienced by the same actors in specific locations and timeframes, investigators will often refer to patterns of conduct that may amount to certain violations and abuses. Incidents, patterns and developments are then further corroborated by using secondary open source information, such as news articles, social media, videos, photographs, satellite imagery, and interviews with reliable secondary sources, such as journalists, first-hand responders or medical personnel, NGOs and CSOs, United Nations or other international organization staff, and other persons who may also be secondary sources of corroborating information. Here I would be remiss if I did not recognize the vital role local civil society groups, human rights monitors and families associations play in assisting investigative mechanisms, particularly if access to the country or territory is not possible. That said, the golden rule for UN fact-finding mechanisms is the information must be obtained firsthand, which means witnesses or victims must be interviewed directly by commission or FFM staff, and their statements cannot be received indirectly through third parties. Another important aspect of the investigation, and one in which the commissioners or experts play an important role, relates to how they interpret their mandate and set directions and parameters for what areas the Secretariat should prioritize for investigation. Finally, commissions and FFMs often recommend appropriate responses by the mandating entity and the international community as a whole. In addition to calls for an end to the violations, this may typically include referring the situation to the Security Council for action, including referral to the ICC, or allowing access for UN human rights monitors or some type of an on-the-ground UN human rights presence, international access to places of detention, etc. This brings us to the heart of today's discussion. How do commissions and FFMs help in assisting accountability or achieving justice? This is often difficult to assess, but I will focus on three key aspects. The first is by ensuring that an investigation is and is seen to be conducted independently, impartially, in line with a sound and consistent methodology, and the findings are presented to the mandating authority and the public in a clear manner with consistent and clear reference to the legal frameworks applicable. While to my knowledge, no commission or FFM has been completely dismissed as a failure, it's often a question of degrees of success, and this will often depend on the decisions taken by the commissioners in interpreting their mandate, the priorities they select, the strategies followed, the ability to cover violations by all sides, etc. More can be said about that in the Q&A. 
Bear in mind also that effective and credible human rights investigations are often being conducted by local and international NGOs, sometimes with access that UN investigations may not have. But the added value of the commissions and FFMs is their official bodies appointed by an intergovernmental body, the United Nations. The reports are official UN documents that reach all member states. There's a formal platform, like the Human Rights Council, where these reports are debated and questions and answers addressed by the Commission or FFM. The reports are on the record and cannot be ignored, although, of course, they can be heavily criticized by the state in question and its allies. Beyond that essential task of putting the violations on the record, attributing them to specific per perpetrators is also a massive help for future accountability. Investigative mechanisms are not tribunals and so can only point to reasonable grounds to believe that certain individuals or groups may be responsible for the crimes committed. However, this lays down important groundwork and markers that assist criminal procedures, as we have seen with some of the trials of Syrian perpetrators now going on in Europe and elsewhere. Last, the impact of a commission or FFM is often measured by the action or inaction of the state or state's question, the international community, the, state, the Security Council, or the General Assembly, or other levers of the international system. As recent examples of action inaction, one can point to the creation of the IIIM in regard to the situation in Rakhine State in Myanmar. Around the same time, a closely related case progressed at the ICC, one which will no doubt rely on both the findings and evidence collected by the Myanmar FFM and the IIIM. In parallel, the initiation of an interstate process at the International Court of Justice, led by the Gambia, on the application of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, appears to rely heavily on the findings of the Myanmar FFMs. In the Syria context, the reports and the advocacy of the Commission may have helped create the IIIM on Syria by the United Nations General Assembly, while the Myanmar president of the ICC, in terms of the cross-border nature of certain crimes against humanity, has led to a similar application by NGOs in relation to Syria, based on Jordan's ICC membership. The recent Dutch initiative under the Convention Against Torture will likely lead to a case at the ICJ in relation to torture, which may utilize the reports of the COI in a similar fashion as in its order of 18 May in relation to Myanmar. In both cases, however, one has to admit there's a lack of real change on the part of the states concerned. The second aspect is ensuring effective cooperation by commissions and FFMs with evidence preservation bodies, national jurisdictions, or other parts of the international system engaged in accountability work. Beginning with the seventh extension of the mandate of the Syrian Commission, in March 2016, the Human Rights Council expanded the mandate beyond fact-finding and requested that it support efforts to ensure that perpetrators of abuses and violations, including those who may be responsible for crimes against humanity, are held accountable. 
This was one of the first times the Council specifically mandated a Commissioner of Inquiry or FFM to act beyond the fact-finding and public reporting role and to support efforts to hold perpetrators accountable. Since the creation of the IIIM and the IIIMs, the Council has regularly mandated activities linked more closely to criminal justice accountability efforts. The COI on Syria from 2016 onwards and the Group of Eminent Experts on Yemen 2017 onwards are mandated to support efforts to hold perpetrators accountable, while the Commission on South Sudan 2017 onwards and FFM on Libya 2020 are requested to collect and preserve evidence directly. For a commission such as the Commission of Inquiry on Syria, the mandate to support efforts to ensure accountability has meant going beyond simply providing public reporting by directly sharing information with third state national judiciaries exercising universal and other forms of jurisdiction, as well as with other United Nations and international organizations, investigations mechanisms, including various UN investigations and the OPCW, IIIT, in response to specific requests. Additionally, the Commission shares all information for which there is consent to share with the IIIM on Syria for its collection, consolidation, and preservation of evidence mandate. In order to do this, the COI on Syria had to develop policies and procedures on what to share with all of these entities building on some general guidance and adapting it in relation to the unique circumstances, mandate, resources, and of course, the do-no-harm principle. This encompasses everything from obtaining the informed consent of the source to use the information they've provided in public reporting and sharing with, among others, national jurisdictions or international tribunals, to internal database management, including computer and IT security, and policies concerning redaction and transmission of data. A third aspect in how these mechanisms help achieve justice and accountability, I would argue, is by directly addressing victims and survivors' justice-based needs. The remit of commissions and FFMs is typically to investigate violations and abuses within a specific time frame and report back to the Council. So in addition to attributing responsibility for crimes committed, there is also room to respond to the other priority needs of the victims. In the Syria context, for example, the Commission has given great emphasis to tackling issues like the missing and forcibly disappeared, housing, land and property rights, civil documentation, sexual gender-based violence, recruitment of child soldiers, etc., not only from the angle of identifying the party responsible and holding them accountable, but also by outlining steps that should be taken to end these violations and to provide greater protections for the population. I will now address lessons learned that could be of benefit to new mandates. Here I will highlight three general areas for particular attention. In terms of ensuring a successful investigation, there's copious guidance now on the methodologies of commissions and FFM investigations from OHCHR METS guidance, the Harvard Handbook, the Syracuse guidelines, 
and a growing academic literature on various aspects of the investigation and methodology of human rights fact-finding. These should be utilized. There may, however, be room to further improve structure and to ask whether the templates for commissions and FFMs remain the best ones for the tasks they are now being asked to do. Does it still make sense, for example, to have independent experts that are pro bono, only working part-time and often on a different continent from their secretariats? Perhaps this has worked for single events or very short conflicts that have been concluded by the time a mandate is created. But what about the longer-term ongoing situations in Syria, Yemen, South Sudan, Venezuela, and now Libya? Would it perhaps not make more sense to have a full-time senior independent leadership in place, as is the case with the IIIM and the IIIM? Would there be drawbacks to such an arrangement from the standpoint of independence and impartiality? The international community did not appear to think so in terms of the IIIM and the IIIM, but should commissioners and FFMs be treated differently? A related issue is the staffing structure and funding of the mechanisms. Once a resolution has been passed establishing a new mandate, a budget is submitted quickly by OTHR and approved at the same council meeting. This is, of course, done quickly and in accordance with a tried and tested formula in order to speed up the process so the investigation can begin quickly. But for new mandates, this is done before the commissioners or experts are appointed and certainly before any strategic discussion within their secretariats, and so may at times create constraints on mandate implementation and interpretation. The second area relates to potential ways of improving cooperation with criminal justice accountability mechanisms. There's a need to place greater emphasis on preservation, storage, retention, and retrieval systems for data information and evidence collection by commissions and FFMs. The recording of informed consent must be considered at the outset, including usages beyond traditional justice mechanisms. Every COI and FFM established going forward should simply assume that their records will be requested to assist national or international courts and tribunals, passed to IIIMs, or used in other restorative justice manners. In the past, most commissions and fact-finding missions themselves are not tasked with sharing information directly, as they typically cease to exist before any national or international jurisdiction could take the steps of contacting them for information. OHCHR, as the custodian of their records, responds to such requests post-mandate. However, the increasing convergence of human rights fact-finding and criminal justice accountability and the repeated extensions of mandates has meant requests for sharing of information are happening during their lifetime. Linked to my earlier point about structure, there's a need to examine critically staffing and resources for the development of appropriate databases and the sharing of information aspect of the work. Typically, in the past, reduction and sharing of data was done after a mandate ended. This is no longer the case, and at present, at least for the most recent commissions, this set of tasks has no dedicated positions and is allocated 
as only a part-time function for a small number of staff who are also engaged in other tasks. The third area relates to increasing protection for survivors, victims, and the population at large in the country or territory concerned. This element is not necessarily included in the mandates explicitly, but in the oaths taken by the experts and in the culture of human rights professionals. This is the advocacy and inclusion aspect by which many parts of civil society measure the success of a commission or FFM. This entails not only gathering and verifying information on grave violations, but also advocating for greater protection for people, greater respect for human rights, and for specific changes in policies to achieve those goals. This requires looking for new ways to achieve impact beyond the council sessions and the mandated reports. The COI on North Korea conducted public hearings, while the 2018 Commission on OPT protests used compelling audiovisual material. And the Syria Commission has relied on a range of thematic reports and advocacy events around its recommendations. It also requires structuring the database in ways that it can benefit other justice mechanisms, such as those working on the missing or to advance reparations. To close, I would like to reflect on how far commissions and FFMs can move into the criminal accountability field. While the overall aims of the two bodies of law may be convergent and complementary, the methodologies, procedures, practices, and outputs differ significantly in some regards. Generally, commissions and FFMs are not staffed or resourced to perform criminal justice evidence collection and preservation, and yet their work is increasingly relied on by various judicial actors, including the ICC, ICJ, and national jurisdictions. There are some efforts, including a new project at Oxford University involving friend of the commission and former United States Ambassador-at-Large for War Crimes, Stephen Rapp, that's examining how to increase the capacity of COIs and FFMs to engage in criminal evidence collection and preservation. On the one hand, there are merits to such an approach, including reducing the possibility for evidence to be compromised and witnesses suffering from potential multiple re-traumatization. On the other hand, without a significant increase in resources and relevant skills, one should also recognize that commissions and FFMs are already struggling structurally to deal with ongoing protracted human rights crises for some of the reasons set out above. There are also questions to ask about the importance for these mechanisms to interact with broader transitional justice initiatives. Much more attention is being paid to enhancing interaction with criminal justice mechanisms, as the increasing inclusion of evidence and accountability language in mandates and the creation of the IIIM and IIIM and the ongoing study at Oxford attest. While these initiatives and conversations are important, it must be acknowledged that international criminal justice necessarily only deals with a fraction of the crimes that may have been committed and the suspects and victims involved. So there's an important role that these mechanisms can play in assisting broader justice issues, such as locating the missing return of refugees and IDPs, HLP rights, reparations, etc. 
For the COI on Syria, efforts on this front have focused on advocacy, the publication of policy documents, and participation in discussions and events. But is that enough? In some ways, commissions and FFMs are becoming one of the few consistently available tools for the international community to react to complicated ongoing crises and conflicts for which further action has been blocked in other fora. The continuous extensions of mandates for human rights fact-finding missions covering Yemen, South Sudan, Syria, Burundi, and now perhaps Libya and Venezuela reflects the gridlock in other areas. They may have become blunt tools for response rather than short-term stepping stones to inform and catalyze specific responses. I thank you for being here with me virtually today and very much look forward to the discussion going forward. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Libya Matters, click on the link in the episode description for the full-length video recording of the event, which includes the lecture you just heard, as well as the discussion and Q&A which followed with contributions for Pablo de Grief, Stephen Rapp, Mervet Rishmawi, and others. The third annual Justice Lecture will be happening in March this year. Make sure you follow us for details and to get your tickets. And before we go, I'm very excited to announce that Season 4 of Libya Matters is coming in February. It's said to be a juicy one, as we will be getting stuck into justice and accountability and what they mean for Libya and to the Libyan people. We'll be returning to our regular format and we have some amazing guests lined up, so stay tuned. To keep up to date with the latest news from the Libya Matters team, you can follow us on Facebook at Libya Matters, on Twitter at Libya Matters Pod, and on Instagram at Libya Matters Podcast. This episode of Libya Matters was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi, and produced by Demiri Media. We thank our special guest, Hanim Gelli. The 2020 annual justice lecture was made possible by the Center for Human Rights Law at SOAS, the International Center for Transitional Justice, ICTJ, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with international media support, IMS. (laughs) 